0: All right. Good morning, church. It's great to see you. If you've got your Bible, uh, go ahead and open it up to Genesis chapter sixteen. Uh, Genesis sixteen. And while you're turning there, um, man, as we approach the end of the year, uh, I said this in the first service, but and I want to say it to you as well, just because most of you in this service, uh, if you're a guest, we're so thrilled that you're here. But most of you are probably. Um, making disciples, you're serving in our kids' ministry and you're over here for this service and we just wanted to say thank you um, as we look back and remember this year. Um, it is truly a miracle um, in God's kindness and His grace towards us. None of this is deserved that we've seen baptisms this year, that we've seen disciples being made this year. Um, the fact that our campus still exists um, is because of the grace and the kindness of God. So um, But he's done that through your means and you getting skin in the game, you serving, you investing, you giving, all of those things. So we did want to say thank you so much uh, just for who you are. Uh, I wouldn't trade this church family for the world. And uh, it's a privilege to to be able to do this with you. So um, thank you for everything that you guys have invested this year. Um, Love you guys. So um, Genesis 16. Uh, I'm going to read this, and if you don't mind standing for the reading of God's Word, uh, this is a doozy this morning. We're going to read Genesis 16. Um, There's only 16 verses in it, uh, but if you are able, um, let's stand and read this together. It says this, Genesis 16, starting in verse 1. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, "'Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children.' Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So Abram um, had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan. Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that um, she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw... Uh, that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, uh, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. Ain't that a phrase, right? We don't see that on a lot of Christian t-shirts. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. And here's our name for this morning in our Names of God series. Um, It is El Roy, which means you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Ber Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And the name of the well is the living one who sees me. Um, And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. You can have a seat. Uh, Yeah, about that. Uh, We're about to walk through that this morning, and we're going to be looking at the name um, that Hagar gives God, and it is El Roy, which means the God who sees me. Um, So let's pray together, and uh, we'll jump right in. Lord, um, Father, we thank you for this word. God, uh, help us to see the gospel in it. Um, God, the gospel is on every page of this book, and uh, we are extremely grateful for that. Help us to see your son, help us to see your finished work through him, and um, God, for the glory of your son, for the glory of you, um, make us holy like you are through this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, got quite the doozy of a story this morning. Uh, We're going to talk about it. Uh, We're going to walk through this a verse at a time. But before we start in chapter 16, verse 1, and get into our characters and all those kind of things, I want to give you some context to Genesis 16 before we just dive right into it. Um, Outside of Genesis chapter 1 through 3, um, 1 through 3 is known as the creation narrative, right? Outside of the creation narrative, Adam and Eve, the serpent, the fall, all that stuff, the chapter in Genesis that is mentioned by far the most, that is probably preached on the most, that is referred to the most is Genesis chapter 12. And if you know Genesis chapter 12, after you get out of one through three, the fall happens in Genesis three, you've got Cain and Abel in chapter four, you've got a genealogy in chapter five that gets you to Noah, and then essentially Genesis six through like nine and 10 is the flood narrative and God sends the flood. Genesis 11 is the Tower of Babel, And after all of that chaos, right? God sends a flood, wipes out the world because of their sin, But his grace, he saves Noah and their family. Uh, The Tower of Babel, the pride of man, let's be like God, let's make a name for ourselves. And God knocks down the tower, scatters the people across the earth, and that's where we get the nations from, confuses their languages. Like after all of that stuff, we can't forget that God made a promise in Genesis 3 that a seed from the woman... Would eventually come, and he would crush the head of the serpent, and would make right all things that sin has made wrong. Right, he was seen a sin, a redeemer, a savior, and we get a glimpse of that in Genesis 12. Here's where the plan kind of starts. Is God shows up to a man named Abram, and let me just park this for a second. Our passage refers to him as Abram and his wife as Sarai. Their names eventually get changed in a few chapters to Abraham and Sarah. So I will, I will mess up and use Abraham and Sarah or Abram and Sarai. I'll use them interchangeably. So just know that's who I'm talking about, okay? Um, I, I botched that six times in the first service and I'll do it again in this service. But God shows up to Abram and makes a covenant with him. And essentially the covenant is I'm going to turn you through your descendants into a nation and through your nation, all the nations of the world will be blessed and you'll have a land to dwell in, all of those things. So essentially the nuts and bolts of the covenant is you're going to have a land and you're going to have descendants as far as Abram is concerned. And through your descendants, I will bless all nations. So Abram literally hears in Genesis 12 from God himself, from the horse's mouth, right? That you will have descendants And then we get to Genesis 15. Abram's older and he's looking around at his cousins and distant family and he still doesn't have a child. Abraham was 75. There I go again, Abram, Abraham. He was 75 in Genesis 12 when God told him this. Years go by, he's looking around going, all right, I'm getting older. I'm not getting any younger And I still don't have any children. And he's looking around at his extended family and he's pleading to God, like some of them are going to be the heirs of all of this if you don't give me a child, right? And God responds to him, and this will be on the screen just because I want you to see it. Um, uh, He says this in Genesis 15. He says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him this man shall not be your heir, but Uh, shall not be your heir, your very own son. So your very own son. It doesn't get any clearer than that, right? You will have a son and he will be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he, Abram, believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So two times from God, you're gonna have descendants And they're gonna be numerous and you're gonna bless the nations through your descendants. So he has heard this from God twice. Now we see in our story, and I just wanna point this out, um, back in Genesis 12, when Abraham first hears this, he ends up leaving the land because of a famine and he goes to Egypt because some people are like, where in the world did Hagar come from? Um, He shows up to Egypt and he's afraid that the Pharaoh will kill him because his wife is so attractive. So... Comes up with a terrible idea and looks at his wife and says, Tell him that you're my sister, and then they won't kill me. So that's what Abraham does at the end of Genesis 12. And what happens? Pharaoh ends up taking his wife into his house. And because he's so ecstatic that Abram has brought him this pretty woman, he gives him cattle, he gives him camels, and he gives him servants. They're in Egypt and Abram is given servants. And most commentators believe this is where Abram acquired Hagar, who's the character in Genesis 16, was through this interaction. And I wanna show it to you just so you see it. Genesis 12, 16, it says, and for her sake, he dwelt with Abram. So for his sister's sake, he dwelt with Abram and he had sheep and oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So you see Pharaoh give these things to Abram, and then if you read Genesis 12, what happens? God is not cool with this situation. He sends plagues down to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, get out. Like, just take your stuff. He doesn't even want the stuff. Like, just take the service, take what I gave you, take your belongings, take your wife, and get out of here. So that's what Abram does, and he leaves, but this is where most people believe he acquired Hagar, who's a character in our story. So he's got Hagar, God's told him twice that he's gonna have descendants, and then we see our problem at the beginning of Genesis 16. It says this, now Sarai, like you can already see, like all this is happening, this buildup, I've been told these things, but then the author's like, now Sarai, though, um, something's going on here. He says, Abram's wife had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. So we see the problem initially, chapter one, author doesn't, Hold any punches. Here's the issue Sarah hasn't born him any children. And we see the problem, but I want us to feel the problem a little bit. Um, it's easy to read that and keep moving. It's easy to read the problem and see it with our eyes, but I want us to feel it because in our day, uh, we live in a different culture where there are so many um, dreams and goals and pursuits that women in our day can pursue. And by God's grace, we absolutely love that. And this day, There was one goal for a woman, and it was to bear children, and that was it, like full stop. That was the goal. That was where you found your significance, your worth, all those things was in the ability to bear children. It was the goal, no other goal. That was it. And you can imagine how terrible this is for Sarah, right? Like you've got her husband coming home, and he's like, God himself told me that we're going to have a kid. And it's just twisting the knife, right? Like every time, like, no, like, trust me, don't don't worry, it's gonna happen eventually. Like, I believe God, it's gonna happen. And oh, year after year, after year, after year. I mean, our text said, um, Abram had been in the land for 10 years. So remember the promise, it was land and it was descendants. We've been in the land for 10 years now, no descendants. And you can imagine the humiliation, the devastation, That Sarai is feeling here. And here's what's interesting. Um, I want to kind of turn the mirror towards us because if we're honest, Sarai's story probably isn't much different than our story because day after day, if you're like me, we turn to so many different things of this world to try to give us satisfaction, to try to make us feel like we'll finally be somebody right? If I could just have that thing, if I could just have that relationship, if I could just reach this level in my company, if I could just um, get this advance in my career, whatever it is, if some of you, you might have walked in here and it may actually be a child. If I could just have this thing, if I could just attain this thing, then I will feel significant. I'll finally feel like I'm somebody. I'll feel like I have purpose. I'll be satisfied, Right? Just like Sarai, we all pursue things thinking that they will make us finally feel whole and right and like we're somebody, don't we? And boy, do we spend insane amounts of money. We go through endless pursuits to try to win our own significance, don't we? We'll spend tons of money, we'll buy cosmetics, we'll do procedures, we'll buy possessions, we'll spend 80 hours at a job that someone else is gonna have 30 years from now. We'll spend time away from our kids. Like, we will go to desperate lengths to try to make ourselves feel significant, secure, satisfied, like we have a purpose. Like, it's the story of our lives, isn't it? There's empathy here for Sarah because her story is our story. It's us in our own power trying to go and feel significant, trying to go win our own, trying to go save ourselves, isn't it? Trying to do something so we finally feel satisfied. And verse two says this, and Sarah said to Abram, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. And I wanna stop there for a second. Um, there is a lot of good theology in that one statement. Um, you might not know this, but you are a theologian. Uh, the word theology just means the study of God, right? Ology, biology, study of life, theology, theos is God, ology, the study of. Every single one of you in here, you are a theologian. You have thoughts about God. You may not be a good theologian. You may not feel like you're a good theologian, but everybody in here has thoughts about God. We are all theologians. And there is a wicked, um, burdening teaching in America these days um, that basically says that Satan is sovereign. Um, According to your theology, someone's going to be sovereign in your life. Somebody will. And there's this wicked teaching out there in our world today that Satan can basically do whatever he wants, and God's like a good ambulance driver who just happens to be close by and has to pick up the pieces and turn something good out of what Satan has done. Basically, Satan has free reign to go and mess things up, and then God's gotta somehow spin the mess into something beautiful, right? And here's the problem with that. God, all throughout scripture, God is the one who is sovereign. Satan is the one who has to go to God and to get permission to do things. God has Satan on a leash, and God does whatever he wants, and all throughout scripture, we see that God is even sovereign over Satan's decisions. God is sovereign over Satan's plans. We saw that in Genesis three, God is sovereign over the fall. We see that in uh, later on in Genesis when um, Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery and God used that to make him second in command of Egypt to save all of Israel. We see it at the cross when Satan's plan was to kill Jesus and God's plan was for Jesus to lay down his own life to purchase redemption for everyone. God is the one who's sovereign. And she, Sarai, correctly recognizes God is in control. God is sovereign. He's sovereign over my mistakes. We'll see that in this story. He's sovereign over our brokenness. He's sovereign over our regrets. And he's sovereign over this situation. And she says, God has prevented me from bearing children. So she says this, go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. So her plan is Abram, take on a wife, "'Sleep with her, and she shall bear children for me.'" Right, did you you see the language? That I shall obtain children by her, Um, which is so interesting. And let me just say this. um, Nowhere in the Bible does God encourage or even condone polygamy, nowhere. Um, In fact, in Deuteronomy 17, he says that he should not take multiple wives. And in fact, every single time in the Bible when you've got Abram or Jacob or um, David or Solomon, whoever, anytime any of them take on multiple wives, it never ends well. Like 100% of the time, it always turns into a disaster. But you can imagine, empathy here, like imagine how vulnerable you have to be as Sarai to say, hey, I think you should probably take on another woman. And maybe she'll provide this child and we'll be able to advance this promise because I feel like I'm letting you down, I'm letting our nation down. Now I feel like I'm letting God down and I can't do this, right? How broken do you have to be to go to your husband and say, hey, I think the solution might be for you to have another wife. Um, And that's where she goes. And then basically what would happen, there's so many few commentaries I read cited like four or five different ancient texts apart from the Bible, that this was very common practice in those days. And what would happen was Abram would take a wife, but it wouldn't be like Sarai wife. It would be like a second tier kind of wife. In fact, Hagar's eventually referred to as one of his concubines, and then Sarai's referred to as his wife. And then she would bear a child, and Sarai would take the child and raise it. Um, and here's what's crazy. It says at the end of verse two, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now this is probably, to me, the worst verse in this passage, right? You've got Abram here, who's literally heard God audibly two different times tell him, your very own son, like your blood, you and Sarai, you will have a child. He's heard it twice and his wife says, hey, I think we should do this. And he listened to the voice of Sarai. Each time, Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, God speaks to Abram, gives him the covenant, and it says, and Abram, listened to the voice of the Lord. But in Genesis 16, it says, and Abram, listened to the voice of Sarah. Completely turning from what God has said, trying to achieve it in his own means. And here's what's interesting. Um, I would argue that this is Genesis 3 all over again. As we walk through this story, you will see parallels to Genesis 3 over and over and over and over again. And I would argue this is our story as well. Abraham, Abram, and Sarai are faced with a situation. Either be saved, be satisfied, find their significance and their joy and their purpose in the promises of God and his divine grace, right? We can either looking at each other. We're both old. We can be saved by God's divine grace, the only way we'll get pregnant, or we can go and try to work for it and earn it in our own means. That's their story, and that's our story. Each day, you and I, we can either find our salvation in the divine, supernatural grace of God, or we can go and try to achieve it ourselves. We can go and try to work for it. We can try to be good enough at our jobs. We can try to develop a big enough following online. We can try to get our reputation enough or if I could just be beautiful enough or successful enough, then I will finally feel satisfied, significant, at peace, joy, or I can find all of those in the divine grace of God. Just like Genesis three, you've got Adam and Eve with a choice. We can trust the promises of God or we can take this into our own hands, right? And what happens? And it says, one of the the worst verses in Genesis 3. She took and she gave, as we'll see in this next verse. It says, let me just go ahead and read it to you. Verse 3, so after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. What did Eve do? She took the fruit and she gave some to her husband. And Genesis 3 says, who was with her? You've got passivity in Genesis three that leads to so much brokenness, and here we are right here in Genesis 16 all over again. Sarai takes and she gives, and the verbs in Hebrew are the exact same from Genesis three. She took and she gave, and passive Abram listens to her, obeys her, and partakes of this. We're not gonna trust in the divine grace of God. We're gonna achieve this ourselves. We're going to go out, we're going to work for this, we're going to earn it, and this is what happens every time they try, every time we try to go out and try to save ourselves by our works, by our efforts, by our careers, by children, by a relationship, it never satisfies. And in fact, it puts a burden on those things that it can't bear, and it just turns into a big old mess, doesn't it? It's my story, chances are it's your story is over and over and over again, us turning to different things of this world to try to satisfy our souls. And we hurt them, we hurt ourselves, we hurt the people we care about along the way. Verse four, and he went into Hagar and she conceived, so Abraham obeys, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. So we see, they give in and what happens? Sin ensues, same thing in Genesis three. They give in, they disobey, sin ensues. And what happens is now Hagar gets pregnant and she starts to look down on Sarai because she has a child. She starts to look down on her mistress. And then here we go, verse five. And Sarai said to Abram, "'May the wrong done to me be on you. "'I gave my servant to your embrace, "'and when she saw that she had conceived, "'she looked on me with contempt.'" So here we go. Sarai starts blaming Abram. What happens in Genesis three? God says, who told you to eat? And he's, what does Adam say? The woman who you gave me made me do this, right? Blame shifting. It's, it's the fall all over again. Sin ensues and we start to play the blame game. Just like Adam, we see Sarai doing the same thing. May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. And you can tell how mad she is because she says, may the Lord judge between me and you. Essentially, I have the right to feel this way. I'm justified in feeling this mad at you, and we'll let the Lord judge who's guilty here. But I'm sticking to my guns, right? Like, may the Lord judge who's really at fault here, but I'm blaming you, is what she says. And she is livid. Why? Because what she thought would save her ended up leading to sin and brokenness and weariness, and it did not satisfy. It went according to her plan, and it did not work. You and I, over and over again, when we go and try to work for and earn our own significance, our own status, our own worth, our own value in this world, it will never satisfy, ever. She goes and tries, And you can see how broken she is, how mad she is, how livid she is. Um, In fact, the writer of Proverbs gives us a little glimpse into this. And we won't stay here long. I just want you to see this. Um, Essentially, Proverbs, especially chapter 30, can get a little weird with how its um, wording is. But it lists three things that cause us to tremble, that cause us to be amazed. And then it lists a fourth thing that's like so crazy that we can't get past it. So this is what it says. Proverbs 30, 21 through 23 says this. Under three things, the earth trembles. Under four, so on the fourth, it cannot bear up. Here's the first. A slave when he becomes a king, right? That causes us to tremble and all. A fool when he's filled with food. An unloved woman when she gets a husband. Like all of that causes us to tremble, right? How incredible. I'm in awe of that. But here's the one that we can't bear up. Here's one that hurts so bad that it's, impossible to get past. And he says this, verse four, a maid servant when she displaces her mistress. Exactly what's happening right here. You've got Sarai, who's barren, can't have a child. Let me try to take matters into my own hands. Hagar bears a child, and now she's taken the place of Sarah. This is what happens Um, every time you and I, the story, turn the mirror around, this is what happens to us. Every single time that we try to turn to something to save ourselves, this ensues, right? Because anyone, if our worth, our significance, our value is coming from a thing in this world, then anyone that's going after that same thing is a threat to us, aren't they? And anyone that gets that thing is an enemy to us. And I see this all the time. You probably see this in social circles all the time. But if your role, if your worth, if your value comes from being the funny guy in your group and suddenly someone else shows up to the group and they start telling jokes, what happens? We go, ah, like that guy should be stopped. Like that was like, see, we have rules around here and you cross the line. Like, I don't think you should be a part of this thing. Why? Because they're living out your purpose, your identity, your significance. They're, they've got it. They're a threat to you now. If your role, if your significance comes from being the most fashionable kind of in your friend circle, and someone else shows up and they know all the boutiques in town and they've got all the fashion, what happens? We go, oh my gosh, you look great, where'd you steal that from, right? And we like start to twist the knife and say things and drop hints, why? Because they're a threat to us. If my significance is coming from that thing and someone else is achieving or about to achieve that thing, then they're a threat and an enemy to me, aren't they? And we see this over and over and over again. Or we get that thing and we look down on everybody else that hasn't. Because this is my joy, my satisfaction. I'm somebody now that I finally got this thing and we look down on other people that can't. And we do this over and over and over again. And those were kind of trivial. But for some of us, this may be the situation um, about having a child. Maybe the same situation as Genesis 16. Somebody in here, maybe someone you know thinks that if we could just have a child that we will finally be satisfied, we will finally be complete, we'll finally feel like we have value and dignity and purpose, right? To the point where they think that that thing's going to satisfy their soul, that they are not able to celebrate anytime somebody puts a pregnancy announcement online because it turns into bitterness and resentment and now I can't celebrate you because you're an enemy to me because you have the joy that I'm looking for. Does that make sense? We see this with marriage all the time, right? If you think marriage is going to complete you, then you are no longer free to celebrate any time somebody posts about their engagement. Why? Because they're living out your purpose. You think that they're now somebody and you're a nobody because they have the thing that you think is gonna satisfy you. Over and over and over again. Man, do we see this in churches though. Um, And this is just for kicks, but we see this all the time in churches. Where somebody will mention another church in conversation and we're like, yeah, that's a great church, you know. If you like watered down teaching and non-passionate worship and all that. like, like we love to say those kind of things. Why? Because we like to get up here and say that the gospel gives us our significance and our satisfaction, but really it's how many people will come to our church, right? And we love to say, man, we just want God to use us, we want God to use everybody, we want the gospel to go forth, but really secretly. We just want God to only use us, right? Because our worth, our value, our significance comes from being the most popular, whatever it is, right? We see this all the time. In fact, this last season, this was creeping up in my heart Um, before I ended up here uh, about a month ago in this role, or two months, three months, I don't know how many it's been. It feels like dog ears around here at High Point. Um, But I was... Kind of finishing up my time in student ministry, I had stepped in and started leading the college and 20s ministry, and I was in seminary and I was teaching here. Needless to say, it was a very unhealthy rhythm, and I needed some help. So, in the college ministry, I started asking a few of my buddies um, to come and teach. So, I asked this guy named Ryan. Some of you guys might know Ryan Abone, he's on our staff uh, now. it wasn't at the time, but started asking him to come and teach. So he comes and teaches at the house at our college and young adults ministry. If you're not involved in that and you're in your college of 20s, I would highly encourage it. But he starts preaching and instantly we start getting all this feedback. Like, man, that was awesome. That was so encouraging. He's a great teacher. And I see this thing start to creep up in me. Like, oh no, there's only room in this town for one of us, right? This town ain't big enough for the two of us. Um, and, I see, and I see this wickedness in my heart, right? That I'd love to be able to get up here and say, I never struggled with that. And I always just want to serve you guys and just preach God's word and stay humble. But secretly, my heart is prone to wander too. And there's so many times where I want to be known and my significance comes from being a great teacher. So the moment any other good teacher comes by, they're now a threat to me. And if Everybody says they're a good teacher, now I'm like jockeying against position. And I felt this creeping up in my heart and I decided not to toot my own horn or anything like that because I've already admitted like it's pretty wicked. Um, Just decided every time I start thinking that, I'm just gonna pray for him. I'm gonna pray for Ryan, I'm gonna pray for Lainey. I'm gonna pray for his job that he was currently working, her job, their family. And what used to be bitterness and resentment turned into us talking about the gospel more Us talking about preaching more turned into an incredible friendship to the point where when this opportunity came up, I knew exactly who should step into the college and 20s ministry because I had been praying for him for months. And there's a lot of good that's come out of that last season, but one of the best things that's come out of that season for me is Ryan's friendship because I decided that my worth isn't going to come from being a you know, the preacher that everybody loves or anything like that. It's gonna come from the gospel. It's gonna come from the cross, which finally freed me up to celebrate other people as they achieve and as they advance and as God uses them. It freed me up to celebrate him, to talk with about him, to talk about those things with him, to do life with him, develop a friendship with him. I was no longer at war with him. Let me just say this, that's a terrible place mentally to live where you're constantly just evaluating other people's lives and trying to jockey for position and you're secretly fighting against them and they don't even know it. And you're trying to win some, muster up some significance in this world and you think that if you could just attain this thing, get this relationship, have that possession, reach this goal in your career, whatever it is, if you could just get that, then it will satisfy you. And you're secretly, internally fighting with all the people around you and they don't even know it. It's a miserable place to live. I've lived it. And my prayer is that if you're in there this morning, if you're in that mental state, um, there's a better place to find your worth and your value and your significance. And we'll see that in this text. Um, But we gotta keep moving. Verse six, Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. So, this wimp right here again, we see it. Abram just being passive again, right? What does he say? Your servant is in your power, do to her as you please. What he should have said is, my wife and my child, and we're not going to do anything to her. But we see Abram being passive once again. Your servant, right? Do as you please even though Hagar had now become his wife and that baby had become his child. So Sarai deals harshly with Hagar. We don't get any details into what that consists of. Um, You can imagine a mistress and a slave or a servant, what that might've consisted of. All we know is that it was bad enough that Hagar felt like her only option was to leave the possessions and the wealth of Abram and to journey out in the wilderness by herself to try to get back to Egypt as a pregnant woman. Um, It was that bad. So she takes off. In verse 7, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. So we see just from those details that she's headed to Egypt and the angel of the Lord shows up. And he's shown up just about every week in this series. And it's important for you to know that the angel of the Lord is Yahweh himself. There are other angels that show up that have names, but all throughout the Old Testament, you see this, the angel of the Lord showed up and it is some sort of presence, pre-incarnate Christ. Uh, it's usually referred to as a the theophany, but it is, it is Yahweh himself in some physical form showing up to Hagar. And he said to Hagar, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And this is Genesis 3 all over again, right? What do we see? We see, and look at the irony in this verse for a second. He says, Hagar, servant of Sarai, right? So he knows her name and he knows her mistress's name, but then he says, where have you come from and where are you going, right? Right? And I don't know what we can learn from this, but it seems like every time that we are in despair and we're on the run and we um, have nowhere else to turn and Yahweh shows up in the Old Testament, he usually always starts with questions. And there's wisdom in that, you know, at the very least, but there's gotta be something else we can learn from that. I'm not quite sure what it is, but in our brokenness, God's kindness and his patience towards us, he leads with questions that he already knows the answers to, right? Right? Genesis three, what happens? Adam and Eve sin in their shame. They hide themselves and God shows up and says, where are you? Did God know where they were? You better believe it, right? But in his kindness and his grace, he starts asking questions. Cain kills Abel, Genesis four. Cain shows up to God and God says, where's your brother Abel, right? Did God know where Abel was? Yes. And I don't know what this is, But you see God show up and he calls her by name. He calls her mistress by name. But then he says, where have you come from, right? Where are you going? And then just like Adam and Eve, we sinned, we were naked, we hid. You see, Hagar, anytime you are face-to-face with some form of Yahweh, you start to get really honest. And she says, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. And then I want you to see this. If you just kind of glance at these next few verses, Verse nine, 10, and 11 all begin with, and the angel of the Lord said to her, like to the point where it's unnecessarily repetitive. The angel of the Lord said to her, the angel of the Lord said to her, the angel of the Lord said to her. And Hagar doesn't say anything in between. It's just this kind of threefold statement from the angel of the Lord. But the author wants you to see very clearly that it is Yahweh, it's the angel of the Lord talking to her. And he gives her this kind of threefold thing. He says, the first one is return to your mistress and submit to her. We'll talk about each of these. Verse 10, the angel of the Lord said to her, here's the second one, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. So you are gonna have a son. Go back to Sarai, I'm with you, I see you, I'm gonna protect you, your baby's gonna be born, and not only that, but your baby's gonna have babies, and you're gonna have descendants, and you won't even be able to number them. I see you in your suffering, I see your brokenness, and in fact, I'm using it, I'm sovereign over your suffering. How so? If you weren't suffering, you wouldn't have ran, and we wouldn't be having this conversation. God is sovereign over our mistakes, over our brokenness, over the darkest moments of our lives, he is good and he is just and he is merciful and he is sovereign over those moments. And he says, I want you to go back. You're gonna have the baby. You're gonna have descendants. I see you. I hear you. You won't even be able to number your descendants. In verse 11, the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. The word Ishmael means God or Yahweh hears. So, and I, I love this. The Lord has listened to your pain, to your affliction. It doesn't say God heard of your situation. Like he's in heaven just kind of watching Netflix and an angel shows up and kind of gave him the daily briefing. He's like, oh, I should do so. No, like God heard your actual cry. God sees your suffering, he hears your cries, he hears the pain, and he has done something decisive about it. And we see here, call him Ishmael because God has listened to your affliction. Verse 12, he shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. So we see that Ishmael's life is gonna be full of conflict. He's gonna be wild, He's going to roam the land. He's going to be at conflict with people. They're going to be at conflict with him. And he shall even be in conflict with his family. He will dwell over and against his kinsmen. And we'll mention that. We'll see that at the end of the service. Um, verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Your translation may say, I have seen the one who sees me. What an incredible phrase. El Roy, she calls, she ascribes to God this name based on his attributes, the God who sees me. So Ishmael, you hear my cry, you hear my pain. El Roy, you see my suffering, you see me. And what's interesting about this phrase, if we can focus on it for a second, um, if you pick up 10 commentaries on this Phrase, I've seen the one who sees me, I've seen the one who looks after me. You'll get 10 different interpretations on what it means. Um, It is a complicated phrase that has puzzled many folks, but let me tell you what we do know. In fact, in Hebrew, this was actually written in the form of a question, almost like, Have I seen the one who sees me? Um, Which is actually, I think, very, very enlightening because it shows us that Hagar understands the gospel. And it's very consistent with most of the other stories in the Old Testament where the angel of the Lord or Yahweh appears with Moses, with Gideon, with other people. Like Each time Yahweh appears, there's this shock and there's this amazement. Like, how in the world have I been able to see God? I don't, and you see that because of this, because she's, have I seen the one who sees me? She truly understands the gospel. And the gospel is this, that God is infinitely holy. He's infinitely holy, he's perfect, he's righteous, he's majestic, and we are infinitely wretched, right? And the only way that we are able to see God is by God's kindness. We can't interact with a holy God unless God himself intervenes in some way. And that's the gospel. In a nutshell, God's holy, righteous, I'm unholy, I'm unworthy, and the only way that I'm allowed to get to God and not die is if God himself does something for me. That's the gospel. It's not just that God is holy and I'm a pretty good person, right? Of course he would save me, right? If you think that, you don't understand the gospel, and the opposite is true. It's not that... God is gracious and kind and that I'm just not that all, all that bad, right? Um, if you just believe that God is holy and loving but don't believe that you're unholy and unworthy, then you don't get it. And the opposite's true. If you know you're a sinner and unholy but you don't understand that God is gracious, then you don't understand it. It's the two of those merged together. That God is infinitely holy and righteous and we are infinitely unworthy and God is gracious to those repent of their sin, who look to him in faith. Verse 14, therefore the well was called ber lahai Roy, which means the well of the living one who sees me. And it lies between Kadesh and Bered. So they named this well based on this interaction. And then just like the angel of the Lord said, the angel of the Lord said, the angel of the Lord said, I want you to see this in 15 and 16. If you look at these two verses, um, it is unnecessarily repetitive. It says, Hagar bore, Hagar bore, Hagar bore. Let me show you. Uh, verse 15. And Hagar bore Abram a son and called him the name of his son, and called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Why is that there? Because the author, the writer, wants you to know that this isn't Sarai's child. That God, even when we take matters into our own hands, even when we try to go and save ourselves with our works, try to find significance and joy and satisfaction in the things of this world, in our own efforts, in our own works, God redeems the situation. And Sarai's plan, even though it worked according to what she wanted, the baby doesn't end up going to Sarai, the baby goes to Hagar. God redeems our sin. He's sovereign over our brokenness, He's sovereign over the mess he says, no, 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 Hagar, you're going to have this son. The son's going to be yours. You're going to name him Ishmael. And tells him about the son. And we see this timestamp at the end of 16. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So he was promised at 75 that he would have a son. He's now 86, still no fulfillment. Sarai hasn't born a son. And then we see it won't be It'll be 13 more years before this promise is fulfilled, which is crazy to think about. 13 more years, no son, barren. Um, but here's what I want you to see. The question of the morning, the million-dollar question, is what do we do with this passage, right? Like, what in the world do we do with this story, as crazy as it is? in um, a good hermeneutical rule. Uh, we mentioned one last week that was, don't insert yourselves as the heroes of the Old Testament. Um, It's not an allegory for your life. Um, I do want you to see this. A good hermeneutical rule of reading the Bible, hermeneutics just means interpreting the Bible, is anytime that a New Testament author interprets an Old Testament text, it's how we should interpret it as well, right? If we believe that this book is God-breathed, that the whole thing, is breathed out by God, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the man of God will be equipped for every good work. If we believe that this entire thing, Old Testament and New Testament, was written by God, as Peter says that these writers were carried along by the Holy Spirit, then how someone in the New Testament interpreted a passage of the Old Testament is exactly how we should interpret a passage of the Old Testament. Does that make sense? We can bank on and bet on their interpretation. Why? Because the Holy Spirit helped them interpret it and helped them write it because it wouldn't be in here if it wasn't true. It wasn't God-breathed. Does that make sense? So flip with me as we close to Galatians chapter four. Flip over to Galatians four. I want you to see this. It'll be on the screen. Um, But Paul brings up this very story in Galatians four. And he gives us the interpretation of this text. And this is what he says. Um, Let me read it to you. Look down at verse 21. Um, And let me just give you the context of Galatians real quick. Basically, essentially all of the New Testament letters are ever since Jesus died and rose, um, people showed up and started adding things to the gospel. It's not just faith in Christ, it's faith, plus you gotta do works, plus you gotta obey the law. Plus, you gotta, add, you gotta get circumcised. You gotta add all these things to it. It's not just grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. It's faith plus do X, Y, and Z. And Paul writes this whole letter essentially saying it is by faith alone. Ephesians 2, you are saved by grace through faith. It is a free gift of God, not of your own works, not of yourselves, so that no one can boast, right? That's the essence of the whole letter, So he's writing this part. This is kind of like the central idea of the letter. And he says this, tell me you who desire to be under the law. So you people who keep trying to add the law to this, you want to submit yourselves to the law again and be under it. Do you not listen to the law? He's like, have you not read it? Essentially, we can't keep this. Acts 15, Peter said the same thing. Why would we add the law to these Gentile believers who are coming to know Christ by faith? Why would we add the law? And Peter's argument is we haven't been able to keep it and our forefathers haven't been able to keep it. Why would we put a burden on them that we can't even bear? And Paul says, you who are trying to submit yourself under the law again, have you not listened to it? Have you not read it? For it is written that Abram, Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. He's saying essentially how we began this message, that these two sons, these two women represent two covenants. One is you trying to save yourself by the law, by works, right? The other is you being saved by the divine supernatural grace and the promises of God. Hagar, the story, what was it? It was trying to earn your salvation by works. It was trying to, to fix this problem with muster up your own significance, muster up your own satisfaction, muster up your own purpose and your own joy and your own fulfillment, taking it into your own hands. Just like Abram and Sarai were first forced with this decision. We can trust the divine supernatural grace of God. We can try to get pregnant by that or we can take matters into our own hands. Hagar Ishmael, this represents the old covenant of us trying to earn our salvation by our own works. What does he say? Abram and Sarai represents trusting in the divine supernatural grace of God. It's the only thing that can save you. The law can never save you. The law won't save you. Try to do it. Like try to go the next hour and love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul all of your mind and all of your strength. We can't, we just can't. Our hearts are prone to wander, our hearts are wicked. Scripture says the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things, like we cannot do it. If it's up to us, if salvation is up to our own works, then I've lost it, I'll lose it again, right? But praise be to God that salvation is based on works, but it's not your works, it's not my works, it's Jesus Christ's finished work on our behalf. That's what our salvation is based on. Someone had to meet the standard of the law. You can't, I can't, but praise be to God that he knew we can't. He saw our affliction, he saw our suffering, he heard our cries, and what did he do? God himself stepped down and met the standard of, perfection the standard of God's perfect holiness and righteousness for us lived a life without sin and then what did he do he died for all of the times we failed to meet the standard for all of time he took all that on himself and he died in our place why so that we could be children of the promise And that's what Paul goes on to say. Verse 27, For it's written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him, who was born according to the spirit, so it is also now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So essentially what happens here, Isaac is eventually born and Ishmael starts persecuting Isaac and they get cast out. And what Paul is saying is that any person that comes to you and tries to add works to this gospel that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you cast them out too. Send them out. We cannot earn and work for our own salvation. It is a free gift of the grace of God. That the only way that you and I can become children of promise, can't work for it, can't earn it, it takes an act of Yahweh. In fact, this is really cool. I actually just kind of stumbled on this recently, but Moses was a living picture of this. Moses represented the law, Mount Sinai, the 10 commandments. What did the law do? The law is good. The law shows us God's character, right? His perfection. But the law can't save The law exposes our need for God. It shows us the promised land, but you can't get in by the law. And Moses was a living picture of that. What was he able to do? He got to the edge of the land and was able to look into it, just like the law. The law exposes our sin. It shows us our need for grace, but the law can't get you in. It it is only by a divine act of Yahweh that you and I can get into the promised land. We can't earn it. We can't achieve it by obedience to the law. And Paul says this, last verse, and then I'm done. It says this in Ephesians 2, verse 12. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. We were separated, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope And without God in the world, but here's the gospel this morning. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You and I can be children of promise, not based on our works, not based on our good deeds. The only way that you and I will find lasting fulfillment and significance and purpose and joy is forsaking those things and running to the cross. Through the finished work of Jesus Christ, that your heart will be satisfied That your joy will be complete, that you will have purpose, you will have dignity, you will have worth, you will have value. It's only found in those things. And boy, ask me tomorrow. My default setting is to wake up and to go and try to earn it in this world. So, this morning, as we close, I wanna give you an opportunity just to dwell on the cross. Think about your last week, your last month. Where have you gone to try to save yourself? To try to be somebody? Try to feel significant, try to satisfy your soul. What have you turned to? And would you leave those there and would you run back to the cross this morning? Some of you need to see the God who sees you for the first time this morning and put your faith and your trust in the finished work that he's done for you. Um, I'll end with this. Actually, let's just, let's end there. Uh, Let me pray for us and then the band will come out here. But I wanna give you just a minute. I wanna give you a minute to think. Um, So many times we can close a sermon and just jump into a song and your mind kind of just moves on from that and focuses on the next thing. Uh, We just wanna give you a second, um, not to be weird or hyper-spiritual or anything, but for all of us, we've heard the word of the Lord. Now let's think, okay, where have I recently, where am I turning to right now to try to save myself? And it is only by God's grace that he empowers us to forsake those things and to run back to him. When you find the true treasure, which is Christ, it makes all other treasures. What does the hymn say? The things of this world grow strangely dim, don't they? In the light of his glorious grace. Isn't that true? So take a minute, just think, okay, where have you wandered this week? What are you currently turning to to try to save yourself? And let the grace and the mercy of God who sees us in our running, who pursues us in our running and who offers a better way. Let that enable you and empower you to turn back to him.